0: Good morning everyone, good to see you. Uh, Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 240, 2 Samuel chapter 4. It's a rather short chapter, it's only 12 verses, so I'm actually going to read the entirety of it. 2 Samuel chapter 4, page 240 in our pew Bible, would you stand for the reading of God's word? When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Ba'anah, and the name of the other is Rakab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beroth. For Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Berothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Remon the Beth- Be- Berothite, Rechab and Ba'ana, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'amna, brother, escaped. And then verse 7 unpacks more dynamically what happened in verse 6. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed, Ishbosheth, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the beerothite as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me begin our study this morning with a short question to you. When your world falls apart, as we see happening in here, who or what delivers you? What is your hope once you have lost all hope? What is the anchor that keeps your life steady when the waves of life keep crashing over you? What is the ground you stand upon when all other grounds have given way? What is your hope? Who or what delivers you? Let me put it in more practical terms when your financial portfolio just does a head dive, when your romantic interest just wants to be friends, when your candidate loses the election, when you're 40 and you haven't accomplished anything you hoped to accomplish by the time you were 30. When your test results come back positive. When all life seems to be coming apart at the seams. When you are graduating high school or college or facing retirement and an uncertain future, who or what delivers you? Now believe it or not, here in 2 Samuel chapter 4, that is the question that is being posed to us through the events and the responses of the individuals, to which David beautifully gives the answer there in verse 9, almost as a rebuke to any who would have a different answer. He says, "'As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity.'" Now, as you recall from the reading, David says this in response to these faithless men, Ba'ana and Rechab, we'll learn about them in a little bit, who think that because now the circumstances have changed for David, David's now delivered. Now, this may be 3,500 years ago, but that is as much the diagnosis of our age, this is the wisdom of the age we live in today. That your troubles, your stresses, your evils, they're all external. If only things around you would change. If only your circumstance was different, man, you'd be okay. You'd be set. You'd be delivered. Well, these two, they learn the hard way. That when your ultimate trust is in anything else other than what David talks about what it is, it's futile. Now, when you think about it, David's response is pretty insightful. It's insightful in two ways. He says the the thing that delivers you from the trials of this world, that thing itself cannot be subject to the things of this world. That makes a lot of sense. And put another way, the thing that you are trusting in to save you or to deliver you has to be stronger than the thing that you need saving from. It makes sense. Chapter 4 is the final chapter in the story of the house of Saul that was growing weaker and weaker from chapter 3, verse 1. And it ends with a fearful people, a failed line, and faithless men. It's almost as if the narrator, in kind of of wrapping up this mini-story within the larger story of 2 Samuel, wants to say, hey, this is the fate of all who's going to put their trust in false kings. For those who reject God's anointed, God's salvation, this is what they can expect. It's not really a pretty picture. But this is as a reality of what we as people often do. Unless our hope for deliverance, our hope for getting out of a bind is the same thing that David talks about, we will always put our hope in lesser things. We'll grab on to any kind of hope we think will deliver us. And as the proverb goes, it's really more like jumping out of the frying pan and right into the fire. And we do it all the time. There's got to be a different way when the world unravels. Whether it's literally happening around us or your personal world unravels, who delivers you? There is a better way. And we see that here, believe it or not, in this unusual chapter of an assassination and beheading. We see the answer to that question. So here's how the chapter breaks down. It's, like I said, short chapter, two sections to it. Verses 1 through 7, the final fall of the house of Saul. And there's then verses 8 through 12, the fierce love. Of a faithful king. Let's look at it one at a time. The final fall of the house of Saul. Now, as we look at chapter four as it opens, it is a, a picture. It paints a picture of just lost hope, man. Ish-bosheth, it says, he lost his strength, literally in the ESV, his courage failed from the Hebrew original text. That literally is, his hands grew weak. And that's because in, in in Hebrew and in many actually many cultures the hands were often symbols of strength and courage. And it's kind of like saying, Ishbosheth he just lost his grip. He could no longer hold on. So Ishbosheth his courage failed him. His hands grew weak. He lost his grip, and all Israel is dismayed. You see that now? If you are regularly attending here, you might be thinking, Wait a minute. All Israel is dismayed. That sounds like it contradicts just what we learned last week when it said that all Israel was pleased with what David has done. Now keep in mind... What we're reading here in chapter 4 is immediately after Abner's assassination, the news has come back up to the north and it's reached them, and they haven't seen the memorial. They haven't heard of David's reaction at the memorial. After all, this is, you know, this is in the day where you didn't know everything all the time instantly, right? There, well, it wasn't as if there was someone in Hebron DMing someone in Mahanaim saying, hey, Abner's is dead, but don't worry. Everything's cool. David's okay with this, right? That, that wasn't happening. No social media, uh, no FaceTime, I mean, no, no phones, nothing. So the news is coming up north piecemeal in over long periods of time. As far as the north is concerned, Abner's dead. The, the, the hope for the reunification of the, the people of God, it's lost. Maybe uh, David rejected Abner's kind of idea to bring the kingdoms together. And now everything is in disarray. Now, remember in last week, chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, it was the elders of the northern tribes talking with David, but the deal was being brokered by Abner. Now, Abner is gone. What if word gets out that the elders of Israel were planning to defect to David, and now Ishbosheth will turn on them? And so there is just a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety in what's taking place there. Now they have the Philistines to their western flank. They have David on their southern flank. Now their strong man, their hope, Abner, the general of the army, he's dead. Their world's unraveling. Again, fear is the order of the day. And then in verse 2, we're introduced to these two men. And we only know two things about these two men. Number one, we know that they were uh, captains of Saul's Raiding bands. So the nice way to say is is they're soldiers. But when you think about a raiding band that's pillaging and looting, kind of probably the southern provinces of Judea, I can't help but think about some of what we've seen in the news recently. Some of that's been going on. You wouldn't call them soldiers. They're probably more like thugs. So we know they're soldiers. They're more like thugs. And they're from Benjamin. Their names, Ba'ana and Rechab. Now, we already know what they do. I just read it to you. They assassinate Ish-bosheth. But the point of verse 2 and their tribal affiliation is to make the point again, as we saw from last week: Benjamin was whose tribe, remember? Was Saul's. So, again, the narrative is showing even the tribe of Saul, they're disillusioned with him and they're turning on him. And as if that weren't enough, there's no hope in the line of Saul. I mean, look at after the murder of Eshbosheth, who's the next heir apparent of the Saul, Saul's throne is this cripple, who at the most is probably 13 years of age. Verse 4 gives us the time marker that Mephibosheth was about five years old when his father Jonathan was killed and Saul was killed in the battle of Mount Gilboa. Civil war is about seven or eight years. At the most, this kid is 13 years old. Even if he wanted the job, he cannot do it. Remember in 1 Samuel 8.20, what was one of the main things the king needed to do? 1 Samuel 8.20, they said, we want a king like all the nations around us who will fight our battles for us, even if Mephibosheth wanted to. He's a cripple. And so what you are now seeing here is the total collapse of the house of Saul. A fearful people, a failed line, and these faithless men. How different, uh, you know, you can't help but to ask, how different things would have been, right? In our minds, just a few chapters earlier, but remember for them, for eight years ago, how different things would have been if they just recognized God's king, if they had just recognized God's salvation for them, if they had just recognized what God had planned, how different this, this whole world for them would have been. And friends, let me just say, I'm very aware that the benefit of trusting in God's plan for your life is not readily apparent most times, right? The the benefit of doing the thing that God asks you to do, a lot of times, those benefits are not readily apparent. But that's why we call it trust, but it's not the case that God asks his people to trust them, kind of like a blind faith or a blind trust. Not at all. God always asks people to believe on him, to trust on him on the basis of his promises that are clearly revealed in scripture that today you and, all, you and I all have access to, to study, to verify, to see if they're true. God always asks people to trust him on the basis of, his, of what he's done in history. The cross as the supreme example of God's commitment to those who will trust in him. And by the way, the cross, we have this nice cross here, symbolic of what an actual cross would have looked like, is one of the most historical verifiable details in history. Now, if you're visiting, if you're not a Christian, you're not sure what you believe. make of all this, here's what I'm trying to get at. I'm not saying that to admit that the cross took place in history is you admitting that you believe the gospel. I'm just simply saying that intellectual honesty demands that you at least acknowledge there was a historical event of Yeshua from Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross and, as the record goes, was resurrected. Whether or not you believe that is a whole different thing. I'm just simply saying Christianity doesn't take place in a vacuum. There is history to it, which is why, like in the New Testament, the book of Acts... There's over a hundred references to actual historical places, individuals, events, and details. I mean, guys, if you've ever been to Israel, you cannot kick a rock over without a Bible verse being attached to it. I mean, it's everywhere. And so God says, look, trust me on the basis of my promises. Trust me on the basis of history. Trust me on the basis of his character. That even the creation itself testifies to. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It is. How, Paul? Because God has shown it to them. Where? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What's Paul saying? What's Paul saying? you got to look around in creation and you see, maybe you don't know the the specifics of God's character and nature and his plan of redemption, but you clearly see a lot of things about God. And, you know, just we were in the the green room this morning and Rebecca Simoji, she's back from college, she's joining us, she's singing this morning. And so we were talking about, she studied animal science. So I said, Rebecca, what about animal science and the field of animal science has led to greater worship of God? So we had this good conversation about, just animals, right? And so, this is not in my script, so this is off the cuff, so forgive me. But I was thinking about just the giraffe. And so as we're back there talking, I says, doesn't, doesn't the giraffe blow your mind and lead you to worship? Because, guys, my kids are older, so I have more time on my hands, so my brain goes in this direction. Here's the question you have to ask yourself. So if you, know, you guys know what a giraffe is, The heart of a giraffe, roughly 18 to 24 inches in diameter, that's a big heart. And that's because that heart is pumping all this hydraulic pressure against gravity into the brain that is several feet in the air. So here's the question. When the giraffe drinks water, why doesn't its brains get blown out its ears? (laughs) It's a fair question. All that hydraulic pressure pumping against gravity when the giraffe drinks, now it's pumping with gravity. Why doesn't the brain just squirt out the ears? Do you know why? So I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> Giraffes, friends, when they move their neck down, what happens is simultaneously there are valves in the neck that close in direct proportion to its descent so that by the time the head hits the water, all the blood's cut off from the heart. But check this out. Because if you've ever lost like blood circulation in your brain for a second, you, you guys know the experience. You get lightheaded and you pass out, right? So why is it then when the giraffe lifts its head, it doesn't pass out every time? Because as it does this, the brain has a repository that keeps enough blood in the brain so that by the time the head reaches back up, it's not passing out. And as the neck goes up, the valves open, the blood flows again, and all is fine. Just to drink water. What in the world? How, and this is what Rebecca and I was kind of getting like this in the green room, how can you look at that and not go, something's up. This cannot be by mistake. This is what Paul's saying. Even the creation says there is a God. And when you look at the creation, balance, symmetry, beauty, proportion. Like I said, we don't understand his full plan of redemption, but we know a lot about him. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, on what basis do you trust the things you do when everything goes sideways? On what basis do you trust the things you do when the ground gives way? Here's the thing. The difference between Christians... And someone who's not a Christian, and really you could even say the difference between Christians who are growing by leaps and bound and Christians who are just kind of plodding along, is not so much what you believe. And that might be a shock because you're always being told Christians believe certain things. Now that might, that's very true, but it's not so much a matter of belief because James 2.19 tells us what? The devils even believe, but does them no good. See, belief is mere mental assent. What separates a Christian from a non-Christian is not so much what they believe, but a matter of trust. What they trust. See, the thing is, it's not that you can't trust God. Oftentimes the problem is you won't doubt yourself. What I mean to say is we often have such a, over inflated trust in our own wisdom in our own decisions in our own perspective that we cannot trust anyone else God or otherwise but if you're being honest and you look at your own track record can you really say that your wisdom has always carried the day Can you really say that your decisions have always turned out the way you intended them? Can you say that your perspective has always been correct and the right perspective? No. Now, truthfully, if you're a teenager or in your 20s, you probably think yes, right? As you get into your 30s, you start realizing, man, maybe not so much. And by the time you hit your 40s, you're like, I am just screwed. I'm, I'm a mess, right? If you're being honest and you look at yourself, you realize you don't have the wisdom You don't make the decisions you need to the way you need to, and you lack the perspective. You see, a Christian and non-Christian, we both have faith. We both exercise trust. The Christian simply says, I know myself too well. I must trust God. The non-Christian says, I don't know God enough. I must trust myself but there if you're honest the honest seekers on the horns of a dilemma because they know their wisdom their decisions their perspective isn't enough to get them through the day which is why god says on the basis of his word on the basis of what he's done in history on the basis of his character trust him so the question is on what basis do you trust what you do when you need someone to deliver you. Getting back to our text, how different, how radically different things could have been for these people if they had just been able to trust God years ago, when they were confronted with God's anointed, when they were confronted with what what, what God wanted to do, how different things would have been. And chapter 4 records that the bottom has fallen out for Israel. The king lost his strength, then he lost his head The people lost their faith, then they lost their king. So again, the question that comes out of this passage is, when the bottom falls out of your world, when everything goes sideways, who delivers you? For Israel, it was supposed to be ish For ish it was supposed to be Abner. For Ba'ana and Rechab, it was their treachery and self-preservation. And for each one of them, the thing they trusted in failed them miserably, and it had disastrous results. But until we get to David... Where we have a completely different, altogether different alternative way of trusting and relying on things to deliver us. And that's what we look at now. The fierce love of a faithful king, David, immediately puts these two men, Ba'anan Rechab, in the same category as the Amalekite from chapter 1. You remember him? The Amalekite said that he had found Saul and that he had killed Saul out of mercy and he came back to David with Saul's um, crown and armband, uh, really hoping to get a reward, but the reward he got was his execution for killing the Lord's anointed. In verse 10, David immediately puts these two men in that same context, which means he doesn't buy the pious line that they're trying to sell David in verse eight. When they come up to David, they said, here's the head of Ishbosheth. Now keep in mind, uh, four times in se- verses 7 through 8, four times the narrator mentions Ish-bosheth's head. It's as if the narrator wants us to keep this gruesome visit, visual in front of us. And so you can imagine they say, here's the head of Ish-bosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king. It's interesting now they're calling David their lord and king, right, when the text tells us clearly who was their lord. It was Saul, right? So these guys are just treacherous. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. Rechab and Ba'ana make critical mistakes in their assumptions about David. Number one, they assume that David would be pleased that Saul is dead and all his offspring are dead. David never wanted Saul dead. David never wanted any of his sons dead. They assumed wrongly about David. Second, they presumed that because Saul had made David his enemy, that David would do likewise. David would make Saul his enemy. But David never saw Saul that way. He always saw him as God's anointed. And and at the end, Saul even admitted as such that Saul had made a mistake. David never treated him as an enemy, even though he had done the same to him. Third, these two men assume that because Saul sought David's life, and if you know 1 Samuel, for nine chapters, from chapter 17 to 27, Saul relentlessly, relentlessly hunted and pursued David. They assume that David would be hardened and hateful towards Saul. They assume wrong. David wasn't that way. And fourth and finally, and maybe most damning, they presented Ishbosheth's death and the collapse of Saul's household as a gift from God to David. Now, to be clear, while Saul's death certainly was God's judgment on Saul for his disobedience, it was twisted to regard any of what took place as a gift from God. Look, we learned a little bit of this last week. God will use, the, the, God may will and often will use the sinful actions of men and women to advance his good purposes. But it's the height of foolishness for sinners to present their sin as if it was a gift from God. As we said last week, God will in his mercy use your weaknesses and failures despite that fact. But it would be crazy to think that's the preferable way to live if you're a Christian. And so these two men, Ba'ana and Rechab, they totally did not know their king. It had devastating results on for them. The big mistake they made was assuming that this king who they were bringing the head of Ishbosheth to was just like them. But here's the key. This king, he did not look for his deliverance from men. He did not look for his deliverance to happen from a change of circumstances. And he certainly wasn't going to be the happy beneficiary of their murderous deed. That's what verse 9 really kind of gets to. It's the crescendo. In verse 9, David tells Ba'ana and Rehob who delivers him. When it all goes sideways, David's very clear. It is the Lord who redeems his life out of every adversity. Now, you might say, well, that might be easy for David to say. He's in his young 30s right now. He hasn't lived life. Of course, if you know David's story, even up to now, he's lived more life than most. But at the end of his life, in his old age, he says the exact same thing. It's almost a bookend. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 29. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. And David was really clear what was his hope. David really knew who delivers him when he needs it. And, and just, we're gonna, I mean, there's so much more. I'm just going to look at a few verses In between David's life, in between what we see here in 2 Samuel 4 and 1 Kings 1, what David said about his Lord. And here it is in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom will I be afraid? Look what he says in Psalm 23. A familiar psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And finally, here in Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts. And with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people; he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Friends, with this in mind, when Baana and Rahab show up, implying that now David's world just got a whole lot better, that David was going to be okay because they took out Ishbosheth, is a very foolish way to think, isn't it? They didn't know their king. Now remember what I said earlier. The thing that you're trusting to save you, to deliver you, has to be stronger than the thing that you want to be delivered from. This is a common sense idea. Here's the connection point. Friends, if at the end of the day, a change in circumstance is what you're truly hoping for, if all your problems you believe are just these external factors, then your solutions will always be equally Shallow. I think I'm making the case here that David knew, and if anyone understood adversity, it would have been David. He knew at the end of the day the thing that delivers him is not contingent or dependent upon circumstantial changes or other people. Because it was going to be dependent on the Lord. But if we think all of our problems are the circumstances around us, then our solutions to those problems are going to be equally shallow. And so when things aren't working out in your relationship, you're just going to jump from one relationship to another relationship, hoping that infatuation is as satisfying as commitment, and it's not. Or you'll think success at the office or work success can dull the pain of family or marital failure, so you ignore one to the neglect of the other. You ignore one, ignore one for the other. Or you think that uh, your discouragement with God and your disappointments in life can be buoyed. Sex, drink, anger towards God. I mean, those, those are distractions at best. They're self-destruction at worst. Or maybe, maybe for you, retail therapy is how you deal with the hardships of life, right? <laughs> or maybe you're the person that eats their emotions, So when it all hits the fan, you hit the ice cream. Whatever it is, if you think that the circumstances around you are the problem, your solutions are going to be equally shallow. And that's like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. None of those things deliver, not in any satisfactory way. And in fact, they actually cause more problems than they actually solve. Friends, was I describing some of you? that that, that's what you're doing. You're jumping from one difficult situation right into another difficult situation because you think that's your deliverance. It's a short-term gain, a long-term loss. David had adversity in his life. Eight years of civil war, we talked about that. Challenges in his home, challenges in the kingdom. Yet he never settled for mere circumstantial change to bring him his deliverance. And we know why. We looked at it a little bit. Before I show you this slide, I've been talking to you since our study of the book of Revelation. That genre of the Bible matters, right? That there's all these different types of literature in the Bible. And if you're reading uh, poetry like you're reading the epistles, you're going to miss a lot about the poetry. like The the power of the Psalms and all that. And so we have to understand what's happening in the, 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 the genre we're reading. So this is what David says is the Lord. And they're all taken from the book of Psalms, which means poetry, which means song, which means... The metaphors have much more traction to them than just read them and pass on. He says, the Lord is my light. Now we, we, we know the connection. Of light is guidance, that makes sense, but 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 light also gives wisdom. Light in the darkness, if you've ever walked around a house in the pitch black and maybe just a stream of light, it doesn't take much, but you know where the Legos are on the floor, where your kids left them, how to avoid them. You know how to get to the bathroom safely. It gives you wisdom as well as guidance. David said, That's the Lord to me. He gives me guidance, but He also makes me wise. He's my salvation. That's a pretty straightforward one. He's my rescue. And David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I I don't know how many of you actually spent time with shepherds. I haven't. So we read this and we just kind of pass on. But you can imagine what shepherds did. They give care and provision. They would care for their sheep because their livelihoods was bound up to it. But they also had affection for their sheep. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, he's talking about provision and care for him. And he says, the Lord is my strength. Right? That, That speaks of power, Right? But that power also brings confidence. The Lord is his strength. He gives him power, but that power translates into confidence in his life. He says, the Lord is my shield. Not too many of you have ever needed to shield yourself from attack. But remember what a shield does a shield protects that, your head from being split in two from this axe, and it gets hammered and hit and splintered. And David says, you are that shield that takes all the hits, that preserves my head. You're the one that preserves me and protects me. In ancient Sparta, if you dropped your shield, you were lashed. They didn't care if you dropped your sword, but if you dropped your shield, they would whip you because they knew that the shield not only protected you, but the man on your right and the man on your left. And if you drop that shield, all three of you were dead. David says, that's what you are, Lord. When those axes come at my head, I hide behind you, and you take the hit, and you take the hit, and I am preserved. It speaks of protection. Then he says, you're my saving refuge. What's that? Sanctuary, right? Peace. So David says, Lord, you are my provision. You are my power. You are my protection. You are my peace. You are all these things, God. This is what David understood. Now, the second point I've entitled the the fierce love of a faithful king, I'm not referring to David. I'm referring to David's understanding and experience of who the Lord is. And the reason nothing else mattered is David knew the fierce love of a faithful king because he was all these things to him. And that helped him. That helped David live with clarity and conviction and decisiveness for most of his life, right? And the reason I hedge is because we kind of know that the, the wheels come off at some point. But for the most of David's life, that understanding of God helped him live with clarity and conviction. And like we see how he dealt here with Ba'ana and Rachab in 2 Samuel 4. They had killed an innocent man, and the scriptures were clear how to deal with them. Even though David benefited tremendously from their work, David was going to exalt righteousness more than success. They violated the word of God and expected not only to get away with it, but to get a reward. And they thought David was like them. They did not know their king. Do you? Friends, do you know the fierce love of a faithful king? It's easy to, to say you believe that, but do you know it? We sang about it before I got up to preach. Let's see if I can get the lyrics here. And this is why, friends, part of the whole service is the music. Some people only show up when the preaching happens sometimes, but they're missing out. Listen to what we just sang. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So, the, the, the singer is talking about this courtroom setting almost. And here's this great high priest, and he's pleading on my, behan, my, my behalf. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. In other words, he's saying, This is my defendant. And no matter what accusations may come towards me, as long as he's standing before the throne, I'm free. Mm, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, amen. And and here's the thing, he's right. That's the thing that's so frightening. Every Every accusation the enemy brings against you is right. And tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, do you know the fierce love of a faithful king? Do you trust it, not just assent to it, as it permeated through your life? Now this morning, I began by asking the question, who delivers you? And I end by simply stating the answer, it's very simply, the one who delivers you. Let me put it in the past tense, the one who delivered you. Friends, if Christ can be trusted to take upon himself your greatest adversity, which is the sin that separates you from a holy God, that is your greatest problem. Now, you have all kinds of problems. Some of you more than others, I know. Um, but your greatest problem is that. It is the problem underneath all your problems. And if Christ can be trusted to take on that adversity, arguing from the greater to the lesser, he can be trusted to take on any adversity you face. But the question is, like David, do you know him? Do you trust him? Every one of us trusts something. Regardless of your professions of faith, we all trust something. The question is, is that something you trust to deliver you when the bottom falls out, when life goes sideways, is that thing worthy of your trust? Because we saw a whole chapter of people putting their trust in the wrong things and where that ended up. Paul the Apostle, in speaking of the cross, says it's a daily reminder that God is worthy of that trust. This is what he says in Romans 8.32, and I'll finish with this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, who delivers you? the one who delivered you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the the rough and tumble of real life, in the grit, the dirt, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the violence, the treachery, the deception, the confusion, the heartache of what we've been reading in 2 Samuel, yet at the same time there's been this theme behind that you are working to bring about your purposes, and they're glorious. As we turn the corner and kind of put behind us this, these years of civil war and we see next week the king enthroned and the victory he brings, we know it's not about David. We know we don't look at him but look through him to the gospel truth that when the king is enthroned, our battles are won. And the, the biggest battle is the battle against sin. And Father, while in our lives there will always be struggles, skirmishes, and fights. We know that the greatest battle has been fought for us. And that gives us the confidence to face any of the other struggles that we need to endure. Because we don't endure them alone. Because we have the fierce love of a faithful king. Lord, it is my prayer that we would all know that. Not just as a mental assent, but as personal trust. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen.